Have you guys ever had a time, I'm sure you have, where you've uh, done something really stupid? Or, yeah, no, I know. You, yeah. You've said something maybe unkind or untrue, or maybe you turn around in a store, you break something, you know, and in slow motion you see something fall to the floor and break. And you know you have this immediate, uh, both a dread, but also this desire that somehow you could magically turn back the clock. You'd, you'd move time back and that disaster that just occurred, you'd take, you know it was coming, you'd take care of it, it wouldn't happen. What do you do when you blow it? And you can't magically turn back the hand of time. You can't go back and make it straight. What do you do, in fact, when <clears throat> excuse me, Humpty Dumpty falls off the wall and you're the one who pushed him? How do you make it right? What do you do? We're back in Genesis 3 this morning. And if you remember last time, we looked at the temptation account in the first six verses of Genesis 3. And we saw that process of temptation that led to sin and death. We'll pick up this morning. I'll start at verse 6, actually, again. We'll only go through verse 13. Starting at the end of the passage we looked at last week, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Verse 7, And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. You remember back at uh, verse 17 in chapter 2, God said to Adam, If you eat from that tree, dying you'll die. Dying you'll die. And Adam and Eve ate. And they did die, and they died immediately. And in one way, they died spiritually immediately. That relationship, unbroken sense of fellowship and relationship they had with God ended immediately. But the, the death, either in this count or otherwise, I don't know what they expected, but when God said, dying you'll die, I would have expected something a little bit more dramatic. It didn't happen that way. But there was this immediate break in fellowship, and they know something's wrong. And then in verses that follow closely here, God tells them in the curse, not only have you been separated from me spiritually, so there's been immediate spiritual death, but also your bodies now are going to start this process of death. So that, remember, death is separation. They're separated from God spiritually. Their bodies and their souls are going to be separated in the future. And it's going to be a long process of dying. God said, dying, you'll die. So immediately they die. They're broken from their relationship with God spiritually. And then God tells them in a few verses, and physically you're going you're to start a process of dying, which will end when your, your body goes back to the dust from the ground it was taken from. 
But look in this process. When God says, die and you'll die, something comes up here that I would never have expected, and, and I'm not sure why it ties so directly to dying, but look at what comes up. The first inclination of their death and their spiritual separation from God in verse 7 is this immediate sense of shame. An immediate sense of shame. Their first thought, if you will, their first recognition as a sinner, as someone separated from God, is of their own deficiency. It's this shameful response to life. They see the world, and now they see themselves in a way that they had not before. And remember, at the end of God's creation, uh, 2.25 was very specific. They were naked, and they were not ashamed. They were everything God wanted them to be, and they were nothing God didn't want them to be. So their nakedness at that point is no issue. But all of a sudden this morning, as they take that fruit and they eat, and they're cut off from God immediately, their first recognition is that they're not what they're supposed to be, and it's inherently tied to this sense of nakedness. At this point, Humpty Dumpty's fallen off the wall, and they look back, and the thought is, oh no, what do we do? They've acquired wisdom. And if you remember, the appeal here to the tree was not just that the fruit would taste good, but the temptation was you'll be wise, you'll gain wisdom. And so they have gained a kind of wisdom, they've gained a kind of knowledge they didn't have, but it's because they are now morally deficient. They know right from wrong because they are in the wrong. They've gained the knowledge, but not in the way they thought they would. Now, as soon as they feel this pang of shame... They uh, cover their nakedness. They put together leaves to cover their loins, loincloths, or their genitals. Now remember, when God looks at Adam and Eve, uh, male and female is his idea, sex is his idea, genitals, male and female, it's all his idea. But suddenly they have this inherent sense of shame about who and what they are, kind of at the deepest place of their being, their own sexuality. So when they cover up, they cover up that which is most unique about each other. Does that make sense? You look in the scriptures, and in fact, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that almost always shame is tied to your body. Almost always a sense of shame is tied to our bodies, or our bodies are tied to the thought of shame. And I think I get part of this because we're physical beings that somehow we live life, we interpret life physically in the world we live in and so somehow shame directly ties to our bodies i'm not sure all the reasons for that but here directly their first thought is they they want to cover up their bodies i feel ashamed i'm not what i should be and i want to physically cover up my bodies they also hid themselves from god John Salehammer points out that the trees that God had given them, you remember they're in a garden of trees and he's put all these trees in the garden and they're all filled with fruit and they're lovely to look at. And the trees that God had made for them that they could eat from and enjoy, the trees become now the place that they hide from God in. The trees that were meant for a blessing now become the place that they run to hide. And also this, I suppose if there's a funny or an ironic sense in the passage, it's this last one. Psychologists call it blame shifting. You know, when God goes to Adam and he says, did you eat from the tree I told you not to? What does Adam say? Uh, You gave me that woman, and that woman gave me the fruit, and then I ate. In other words, God in the line of responsibility, you're to blame first, 
she's to blame second, and I'm kind of the innocent party here. And when he asks Eve the same thing, she does the same thing. She admits her guilt only after she says, the serpent tricked me and I ate. You get this immediate sense of blame shifting. In other words, to this sense, to this response to a sense of shame, instead of fessing up, owning up to their own culpability, there's this immediate desire, and it's part of this process of hiding. I shift the blame away. I shift the responsibility away. I can't handle it. I don't know what to do with it, and so I'm going to give it to someone else if I can. So immediately when they eat, this dying you'll die, it happens, it starts. They're alienated from God and they're afraid to see Him or be seen by Him. And they're alienated from each other and they're blaming each other. So we go from everything's good to Adam and Eve feel shameful, they're hiding, they're afraid of God and they're at odds with each other. Shame remains today, I'm convinced, Uh, probably one of the most uh, debilitating of human emotions, both for Christians and non-Christians. And I think it's for lack of adequately dealing with our own shame before God and sometimes with each other that most of us live compromised lives and in some ways, which we'll talk about more fully here in a minute, Lives in which we still are at least in part in significant ways. We're still hiding in the trees, afraid to come out in the sunlight of life because we don't feel right either before God, before ourselves, or before each other. That shame, sometimes properly, but, but maybe more often improperly, shame hamstrings us from becoming the people God means us to be and to living life fully and freely the way God means us to. And we'll, we'll see more of that in a little bit. Listen to a couple definitions of shame. The Oxford English Dictionary says it this way, the painful emotion arising from the consciousness of something dishonoring, ridiculous in one's own conduct or circumstances, or in those of others whose honor or disgrace one regards as one's own or of being in a situation which offends one's sense of modesty or decency. It's this painful emotion. Answers.com online says it this way, a painful emotion caused by a strong sense of guilt, embarrassment, unworthiness, or disgrace. By the way, I thought it interesting, Answers.com, this online uh, education resource, when they start treating this, the first thing they do is is quote Genesis and, and talk about shame from Genesis, which I, I was uh, surprised by. Shame is certainly uh, one of the strongest emotions that we have. Shame is a very, very strong emotion. And people can be uh, easily manipulated or controlled by shame. Avoiding shame, and by the way, <clears throat> shame and embarrassment Embarrassment, maybe we could say it this way, is shame in front of others. Shame by itself doesn't require others to be aware of what we've done or our deficiency. We can feel personally ashamed just between God and ourselves. If the shame is public, then there's also the embarrassment factor. That's that's the shame having to do with other people being aware of what's gone on. But avoiding shame is a key motivator for most of us most of our lives. And I think in this sense in a way that's not healthy, not biblical, not what God calls us to. And you know, 
Have you ever experienced this where at one moment you feel on top of the world, life is good, God is good, everything's good, and you'll get a thought or someone will say something and it's this pierce uh, of shame or embarrassment and you go from feeling like you're on top of the world, life is good, to looking for the biggest rock that you can crawl under and hide yourself because you feel so ashamed or so embarrassed. Shame is this incredibly powerful emotion. And when we feel shame, we want to do exactly what Adam and Eve did, which is we want to get rid of it. Like Humpty Dumpty falling off the wall, we look at the pieces on the ground, we don't know what to do, but we improvise and we do our best. We hide, we shift blame, we cover up in ways that we're able to, all of which, of course, don't really do the job. Now, Adam and Eve, they sewed leaves together. They, remember, they run into the trees they sew the leaves together and they blame someone else as far as they can. That was their way of dealing with shame and guilt. Leaves, hiding, shift the blame. You know, we do all of those things and we probably add a few more. You, you could probably come up with your own list, but these were a few I thought of. One is this, uh, perfectionism. Uh, we all have this innate sense of our deficiency and so in order to cover up, some of the ways we can do that would be a perfectionism and that means... I decide that I'm going to live life in such a way that I'll be above reproach so that no one can blame me of anything. I'm going to live life perfectly so no one can blame me. I won't suffer shame because I'll never fall kind of below the standard that I expect for myself or others expect for myself. I'll live perfectly. You know, the problem with this, of course, is that no one can. And James says we all sin in many ways. So in this attempt, the difference between this attempt to live perfectly and the reality becomes anxiety and anger and controlling, trying to control your life and others, and it makes us small, mean-spirited, controlling, fearful people. This desire to cover shame by living this life of perfectionism. Something similar to that, a little different, is covering my shame with success uh, these people tend to be proud and arrogant. And, and I think for this group, if we try and cover shame with success, it's not that we don't realize that we're not all that we should be or that we make blunders intentionally or otherwise, but it's that we cover them up with our own version of success so that in my mind's eye, in the balances, if you will, my successes are more significant than my failures, and so I'm okay. And again... This means of covering shame and guilt of having our own conscience tends to make us proud. It tends to make us uh, dull because we're willing and we're, we're quite willing to overlook our own deficiencies, but probably less so to overlook those of others. Another way of dealing with it is literally and figuratively hiding. Uh, people who kind of say this to themselves consciously or unconsciously, I'm going to live life below radar. I'm going to avoid shame or guilt or embarrassment in front of others because I'm not going to get out there and be exposed in the first place. I'm going to stay in the trees. I'm not going to do things. I'm not going to volunteer for myself. I'm not going to involve myself in anything that might put me at risk of being exposed for something less than I should be. I'm going to hide. And so these people, of course, tend to be very fearful. All of life is fearful. You're hamstrung because you're saying from the front end of life, I'm not going to get involved if I think 
there's the potential that I would be exposed as being less than I want to be. These people don't take risks. Uh, I love a quote from Teddy Roosevelt. It's quoted in the front of Charlton Heston's biography. And Teddy Roosevelt says, Don't be the critic who looks at others from the seat, safety of the stands, but the man that Teddy Roosevelt admires is the guy down in the arena, the arena of life, who may be thrown down and he may have failures, but he gets up and tries again. Well, people that hide, they're not in the arena. They're in the stands. And they're not going to come down and participate. Because if they do, they might be exposed as being less than they should be. Another means of dealing with the sense of shame or guilt has less to do with the shame or guilt as it has to do with avoiding or overriding the sense of it. So a lot of people will use uh, stimulants, depressants, sex, alcohol, drugs of one form or another to just dull yourself to the sense of guilt or shame. I may be a loser, I may be less than I should be, but I don't care because I've doled myself to the pain through one avenue or another. These are all deficient, obviously, deficient ways of dealing with the sense, the consciousness of sin and failure and shame. You know, in a fallen world, a shame, appropriate shame, does have value. For Adam and Eve, when they feel this instant sense of shame and guilt, it's appropriate because they sinned and they broke their fellowship with God. They died spiritually and their sense of shame is absolutely appropriate. God had had one standard for them in all the world. There was only one thing they didn't need to do. Don't eat from that tree. And they violated God's command and they instantly felt ashamed because they should. That shame was informed. It was rational. It was real. It was appropriate. God said, don't do it. I did it. I broke fellowship and I feel ashamed. I feel a sense of my own deficiency. That's appropriate shame. And in a fallen world that we live in, where we're all deficient, at the very core of our being, a sense of shame is helpful because it reminds us when we're breaking those commands of God, when we're breaking fellowship with God. However, for shame to be appropriate, for your conscience to operate properly, your conscience that tells you this is right, this is wrong, it has to be predicated on this. You have to know what's true. You have to know what's true for your conscience to operate properly. And for shame, in this sense, to play the role God means it to, to, to give us the sense of our failure, to drive us back to God, to seek a real resolution, for it to operate properly, it has to be based on truth. And this is where the, the gift, if you will, of shame breaks down for most of us. It's when it's not predicated, it's not operating on truth. Psychologist uh, John Bradshaw, a guy on PBS, it's been several years now, but he sold a lot of books. He's a psychologist. He talked about something he called toxic shame. And toxic shame for him as a psychologist was this. Toxic shame was the shame a person typically who'd been abused sexually or physically felt. Someone had violated them. Someone had acted shamefully towards them but they're the ones who feel shameful. Does that make sense? The wrong person feeling the shame. <clears throat> Oftentimes children from families of divorce feel this same thing. 
they have a sense that it was their fault that their parents didn't stay together, that the family broke up. It was their fault. And so in this kind of shame, the person is feeling a shame that actually doesn't belong to them. They're feeling a shame for something that they have no responsibility for. It's toxic because it's unhealthy. And in this sense, there's no way to resolve it. All it can do is give them a false sense of shame and destroy and disrupt their life. There's no resolution because they're not the person who's responsible in the first place. We're not talking about that kind of shame as being healthy or appropriate. There's another way your mind can err related to shame. You can take on the shame of others that doesn't belong to you, but you can also feel ashamed of the wrong things for the wrong reasons. Jesus said in Mark 8, 38, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In this world that's at odds with God, part of the temptation of Satan is to get Christians to be ashamed of Christ or the gospel. And one of the key ways he does it, of course, is through mocking you. And we talked about this in the kind of the lineup of temptation, incredulity, that Christians are so stupid that they would believe this. I think one of the reasons many of us, perhaps most of us, are hamstrung in our ability to share the gospel clearly, confidently with those in the world around us is because we're ashamed. At some level, we're ashamed of Christ, we're ashamed of the gospel because the culture around us tells us we're losers for believing this stuff. Uh, and this is what I meant when I said earlier, you can be controlled by shame by others. Well, see, in this, in this scenario, your mind's not operating on the truth anyway. It's the same thing. You know, if I've been violated and I feel ashamed, that's the wrong kind of shame. It's not informed by the truth. But if I'm ashamed of Christ and the gospel, my sense of shame again is operating on something that's not true. For shame to be legitimate and appropriate, it has to be based on what's true. There's no reason for me to feel ashamed of Jesus Christ or the gospel. But those pangs I feel oftentimes when I think about sharing the gospel with someone else, I think 99% of the time that's what it is. It's shame. I'm embarrassed to say I'm a Christian. I'm embarrassed to share the gospel with this other person, wondering what will they think of me if I say this. So I stay hidden. I stay in the trees. I don't tell them I'm a Christian. I don't share the gospel. So I don't come out in the open and I don't experience shame. But Jesus says this is the wrong kind of shame to avoid. Again, it's not predicated on truth. Paul says against that, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul was put in all these shameful positions. He's imprisoned, he's beaten, he's mocked. You know, read his life story. You know, it's not the kind of life most of us want to live. But at the end of the day, he says, I'm not ashamed. And in fact, he says later in Timothy, I know who I've believed. I know Christ, I know whom I believe, and I've given him those things, I've entrusted him with those things, he's good to go to the end. Paul's sense of not taking on that kind of shame was predicated on the truth. I know whom I believed. I know Christ. I'm not ashamed. Uh, Anatoly Sharansky was a Jewish dissident in the Soviet Union before the fall of the uh, communist wall. If you've never read his story, it's worth reading. It's called Fear No Evil. And he's not a Christian, but his point about shame is a great one. 
while he's in the Russian gulag, he uh, is abused on one hand, but he goes on voluntary hunger strikes on the other <clears throat> as his sole weapon, basically, of constraining the Russians' uh, treatment of him. Uh, he was a well-known dissident. His wife made his name well-known in the West, and so if he suffered harm or died, it was a black eye to the Soviets, so they didn't want that. So a hunger strike was his way. It was his power, if you will. Uh, during one of these hunger strikes, uh, he was apparently very near death, and so they didn't want him to die in prison. So the doctors and nurses came, came in, and they force-fed him this liquid gruel. They put it in one end, and they put it in the other. And it came out one end, and it came out the other. He was naked in his prison cell, covered with vomit and excrement. And he said this, though. He wasn't ashamed. He said, because no one else can make me feel ashamed. Only I can shame myself. And I love that because that's true. In this sense, in this ultimate sense between us and God, no one else can shame you. The world can't shame you. Your relatives can't shame you. Only you can shame yourself. And Sharansky in prison knew this. He feared no evil. And his greatest fear, frankly, was becoming less than he thought he should be by being compelled to do so in the Soviet prison system. But he said, they couldn't shame me, only I could shame myself. And he refused to shame himself in prison. For us, we need to have some of that similar mentality where we say to ourselves, our mind is informed by the truth and we're going to reject any shame that's not appropriate. If we sin and we do wrong and we feel that pang, that sense of shame that's appropriate, that drives us back to God. But when we're feeling shame that is not our own or shame that the world wants to heap on us to control us and to make us small little people who keep our place, you've got to reject that. You can only do this if you've embraced the truth. And guys, this is just one more reason why if you don't read your Bible, there's no way for your conscience to respond to life appropriately. Your conscience is informed by truth, by information, by what you believe is true. If your mind isn't renewed by the truth of the Scriptures, your conscience cannot act to life responsibly, appropriately. It's a given that you'll end up being controlled by shame, perhaps in a variety of ways, inappropriately so, because your mind's not being compelled, controlled by the truth. Parents, related to this, you need to be very careful with the way you treat shame as parents with your kids. And I say this, you can err on two sides. If you tend to be perfectionistic, controlling parents, your, your temptation will be to use shame as a club to control your kid's behavior. And if you use it that way, you're setting them up for the rest of their life inappropriately to respond to life around them. You can get a lot of mileage out of shame. It's a strong emotion. We have an aversion for it. We want to avoid it. So if you use shame as a club to control your children, you're probably going to put thoughts in their mind of shame that aren't tied to reality and truth. And the thing is, you'll make fearful people. And you'll have people who will become young adults and adults and will live life constrained by shame in the wrong way because they're just hiding out so they avoid that unhappy negative emotion. That's one way you can err. You need to inform your child's conscience by the truth, that's the scriptures, but you cannot afford for their sake to use shame as a club as an easy means of controlling them. On the flip side, if you don't inform their minds about what's true, they'll be dull. They won't have an appropriate sense of right and wrong. 
their, their shame mechanism won't work properly because their mind won't be informed by the truth. They won't know what's true and what's not true. They'll be dull to God's things, to right and to wrong. You can't afford to do that either. And we'll talk more about that here in just a second. The world has another response to shame. And I think this is where the culture we live in and the times we live in are at today. Uh, We refuse shame. We feel the shame, but we refuse it. We move past shame. We refuse to live life in the light of shame. Our culture is, in some sense, shameless. Shameless. We refuse to acknowledge there are moral absolutes. We refuse to allow our minds to be informed by the truth. And we turn from shame and the sense of need it's meant to create in us. If you do a search of the term shame, shameful, ashamed, you'll see that it comes up again and again and again in the Old Testament prophets. That is when God's talking to Israel about their conduct, and especially when He's going to bring judgment. He brings this term up. Listen to this out of Jeremiah 6.15. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. God says when Israel's spiritual state has declined to the point that he says there's no redemption, you're headed for judgment, he says they've lost their sense of shame. They have no shame mechanism left. So they have nothing to tell them they're doing wrong. They have no means by which they feel driven back to God to get that shame covered up appropriately. You can go to passages like Romans 1 and see the process that leads to this kind of dullness and hardness. I'll highlight some phrases. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And in Romans 1, you see this process. It's one step. It's very progressive, one step after another. I see the truth, but it's not what I want, so I turn from it. And this begins this downward spiral of hardening. And God gave them over to shameful lusts. They didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. There's this process of hardening. I know something's true. That's not what I want. I turn from it, and I more and more embrace things that aren't true. I dull myself more and more fully to the process of conviction and the sense of shame until at the end, there's no shame left. There's no mechanism left to tell me that I've done wrong. Paul says in Ephesians 4.18, short version of that, that the Gentiles are darkened in their understanding because of ignorance, because of hardening of their hearts. They've lost all sensitivity. They've given themselves over to sensuality. They've lost all sensitivity. I have no conscience left. This, by the way, in Philippians 3.18 and 19 is concerning those who called themselves Christians and were in fact proclaiming the gospel Paul says, many of them live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their glory is in their shame. That is, the things they should feel ashamed of is actually what they boast in. These were professing Christians who were sharing the gospel. Paul says, they should have a shameful response to the way they're living life, but it's actually become their boast. In the culture we live in, typically the larger culture, maybe less those who've grown up in Christians' homes or feel some sense of right and wrong from the scriptures. We live in a shame-less culture. We don't respond to shame at all. Our consciences are dull and hardened. 
there's little hope for a person or a culture who's gone this far down the line because the conscience and the shame are supposed to be those mechanisms that drive us back to God, that we say, God, we have a problem, a problem bigger than us and a problem we can't solve. Back in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have these these responses to shame, to their own deficiency, this hiding, this leaf sowing, this blame shifting. We have our own versions of the same things. But it's clear that no matter what they did or no matter what we do, we don't have an, a fully adequate means of providing for our own sense of guilt and shame. So when you go back to Genesis 3.21, if there's going to be an adequate covering for Adam and Eve, it's clear that God will have to provide it. And that's what he does in verse 21. Skipping ahead to read that, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Those leaves were inadequate and the trees were inadequate and the blame shifting was inadequate. And whatever you and I take up today to deal with sin and shame on our own resources, it's inadequate. You always gain that sense. In verse 21, God gave them coverings that were adequate physically to cover them up, to cover their sense of shame physically. God, it says, provided garments of skin. The question becomes, of course, where did those garments come from? Where did the skins come from? And the first death on earth comes when Adam and Eve sin and they're cut off spiritually from God. They die spiritually at the moment. But as far as creatures dying physically, it certainly appears here that God brings about the first physical death. We assume God slew animals to provide Adam and Eve these skin coverings to adequately cover their physical sense of shame. God comes down and kills animals, sheds the blood of animals to give Adam and Eve a covering that's adequate to cover physically their sense of shame. And you know when you read in the Old Testament, when you read about all those offerings, if you read Deuteronomy or Leviticus especially, and there's offering after offering after offering, You're reading about animals dying, about their blood being spilled out so that the person's shame and guilt can be covered, can be expiated. So the person can be in right standing with God again. God said it takes blood and death to adequately cover Adam and Eve's shame, their guilt, their loss. Humpty Dumpty fell and broke. They pushed him. And it takes more than their meager efforts to put him back together. God says it's something I have to do and I have to provide. When you go to the New Testament, and I'll just a couple verses here out of Hebrews. Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were tempted to leave Christianity, the New Covenant, to go back to Judaism. The problem is this. The Old Covenant, the covenant God had with Israel, It was a shadow of his real means of taking care of their sin and guilt. So the whole epistle of the Hebrews is written to tell Jewish believers that there's no going back. That what God has provided in Christ is the fulfillment of what the old covenant looked at as shadows. In Hebrews 9.14, chapter 9 is talked about the offering of animals and it said that the blood of animals temporarily covered the sinner's sense of sin and shame and guilt. In verse 14, in contrast to that, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, 
Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews 9.14 says, The blood of Christ cleanses your conscience. In other words, just like Adam and Eve <clears throat> excuse me, needed someone else's life to cover their shame, Hebrews says the blood of Christ, His life given on the cross for us, His blood covers our conscience. That sense of violation, guilt and shame that our conscience accuses us of, Hebrews 9.14 says the blood of Christ is what it takes to cover that sense of guilt and shame. 10.10 says this, By this will, God's will, Christ having come to be our sacrifice, we have been sanctified, we've been made holy, we've been set apart for God through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. When it comes to having an adequate solution to our guilt, our sense of shame, our conviction that we've done wrong, there's only one adequate answer. It's Jesus Christ's death on the cross for our sin. And think of this, Genesis 3, naked Adam and Eve run into the trees to hide their guilt and shame. Jesus hangs naked from a tree, bearing our shame publicly. Adam and Eve want to hide and hide the shame, and God says when He deals with shame, He brings it right out into the open. There's only one adequate sacrifice, only one adequate means of covering their shame and ours, Jesus Christ publicly bearing our sin, our shame, our reproach on the cross, His blood shed, so that we can be clothed with His righteousness. You read this in Ephesians 5, you read it in Revelation 19. For Christians, you're covered with the righteousness of Christ Himself. Those animal skins covered Adam and Eve's nakedness, their shame. Jesus Christ's righteousness given to us covers our sense of guilt and shame. His blood takes care of the penalty and then we're given His righteousness, imputed righteousness to us. We have the righteousness of Christ. So that it talks about you, you're clothed in clean white linen, not animal skins, not bloody animal skins, but clean white linen given to you and I in virtue of Christ. And I love Romans 9.33 says this, <clears throat> The one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. The one who trusts in Christ will never be put to shame. Proverbs 28.1 says this, The wicked flee when no one's pursuing, but the righteous are bold as a lion. I think most Christians live like the wicked. That is, we live fearfully. We're ready to flee. We're ready to hide. We're ready to run into the trees. In Proverbs, the thought of the righteous, the righteous have no sense of guilt. They know that they're in right standing before God. If you talk to a Jew after he went and sacrificed the offering at the temple and he walks away, he knows he's in right standing with God. He's bold. He's free to be bold because he has no consciousness of sin or guilt. When you and I understand that all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been covered by the blood of Christ, and that Christ's own righteousness is given to us, we should be bold as a lion. I don't mean obnoxious. I don't mean arrogant or proud. I just mean free to live life in all the ways God wants us to because we don't have any sense of guilt or shame tugging at us to keep us hidden in the trees under those fig leaves. 
we know we're in right standing with God. We know our sins have been covered. We know we stand in the righteousness of Christ. So we're free to be bold. We're free to come out of the trees and live life in the light of the sun, in light of day, because we know that sin, that guilt, that shame is fully provided for in Christ. We should be those who have the sense of not being put to shame. We should be those who are bold as lions. Most Christians I know are not. And I'm convinced it's because we haven't adequately dealt between us and the Lord with our own sense of guilt and shame. And I think it's because of this. We get it wrong on both ends. On the front end, we don't realize, as Adam and Eve didn't, how fully uh, wrong sin is and how much death it really brings. We don't understand the gravity of sin on the front end. And then on the back end, we don't understand the absolute efficiency, efficacy, totality in which God's provision for our sins covers it. If we knew both, we'd walk away from the offering of Christ ready to live life because we'd understand the reality and the terrible wickedness, the the death-dealing reality of sin on one hand and the absolute efficacy of Christ's offering for us and our righteousness in Him on the other. We'd be free to live life. When you and I sin today, and I don't mean in any way to minimize the reality of sin in our lives, when you and I sin today, we want to do what Adam and Eve did. We want to blame, shift, hide, find the leaves. God says do this. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you've done wrong, when you've pushed Humpty Dumpty off the wall, don't hide. Don't head for the trees. Don't look for the fig leaves. You go to your father and you tell the truth. That's what confess here means. You know, if you were a Jew under the old covenant, you took that animal to the temple and what did you do? You put your hand on it and you confessed your sin. And then the animal took your sin in death. When you go to God and you confess your sin, you are acknowledging your shame and guilt, the reality of what you've done wrong. And you're also saying... And I understand, Father, that Jesus Christ, your Son, has fully covered my sin. His death satisfies your claim. And now my conscience, I'm free to go and sin no more, as it were. But don't don't take, when you feel the shame, the guilt, the conviction, when your conscience accuses you properly, you take that to God. You don't hide it. You take it to your Father. You resolve it. And then you go out bold as lions again. That's the way it should work. When I was a little guy... I was on a trip with uh, relatives in Colorado on a camping trip. And one of my little cousins went and played with things that didn't belong to him with some neighboring campers, and he broke something. Well, no one saw it except him and his sister. So he, you know, uh, shifts back to our camping spot, doesn't say anything, nobody knows, no one's the wiser. But his sister, of course, tells mom. And so mom comes to Junior, establishes the fact and says, you must march over there and tell them what you did. And this little guy starts crying and wailing and begging and pleading with mom, please don't make me do this. It was pathetic. I mean, I felt really, really bad for him. And I thought, oh, please let the little booger off the hook because he's dying here. And he was. But mom's a rock and she will not be moved. And so Junior hangs his head, tail between his legs, walks over to the other 
family, and he fesses up. He tells them what he did. And they say, hey, no problem, it's taken care of. Well, he comes back. As bad as I felt for him when he's going over, you know, I just, oh, God, you know, give him a break. When he's coming back, I am as equally stunned by the transformation in this little guy's life. He is skipping and happy and singing, coming back ready to play. See, his guilt, it was real because he'd done wrong and he knew it. But the confession and the forgiveness were equally real. So when he came back, he was, absolutely, he was transformed. There wasn't a tear left. He was good to go. And that's the way it's supposed to be for us. We should have an appropriate sense, a pang of guilt, a sense of shame when we blow it. And and blowing it means it's based on truth. It's not someone else's guilt. It's not being manipulated by shame by someone else. When we know before God we've done wrong, we take it to God, we confess it, it hurts, but there's cleansing, and then we go on good to go, just like he did. Let me close with Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. This doesn't make as much sense for us as for a Jew because a Jew grew up with the offerings and the temple and the sacrifice. And so this doesn't, I think, carry the weight for us. But I'll intersperse Mike's amplified version here. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to enter the holiest place in the universe. There's nothing that holds us back. We have no sense of guilt or shame left by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is His body, because we know Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, offering Himself for our guilt and shame. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's Jesus again, He offered Himself, that was His offering, not another animal, not something deficient. He offered Himself for us, and as a priest, He's in heaven today, guess what? Praying for you and for me. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. The Jews understood what this meant. Your sin is covered. You're clean before God Almighty, before the holiness of holiness. You have confidence to enter in. Nothing holding you back. You're bold as a lion because you know your guilt and shame are fully covered and fully taken care of. Let's pray. Father, I'm just struck again by how little we lay hold of what is ours in Christ. And Father, I know many, if not most of us, labor today under false guilt and shame. That is, shame and guilt not directly tied to sin. And Lord, other times we're dull to the real sin we commit. Father, I pray that your Spirit would enlighten our hearts and our minds so that our consciences work the way you want them to, informed by truth, by your standards, by what you've said is right and wrong. Father, help us to reject any guilt or shame that's not from you. Help us to scorn the shame that the world would throw upon us. Help us to take up John and the apostles' uh, thought in Acts 5 that they were delighted and rejoicing because they'd suffered shame for your name. God, help us to have the boldness of lines because we realize the full covering, the efficacy of Christ's own death, His blood on the cross on our behalf. And Lord, with that adequate full covering, we are welcomed into the holiness of Your presence today and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.